This is Pretty Much Pop, covering topics of concern to the Spider-American community for over 35 years. Our topic this time is the film Spider-Man Far From Home. This is Mark Lintonmeyer, not wearing my mask tonight. This is Erica Spires in Sag Harbor, and I always wear a mask of some sort. Don't we all? And I'm Brian Hurt, and my spider senses aren't tingling, but they do kind of itch. We are talking about the film, and more broadly, superhero movies. We can't just talk about anything specifically at this point. It's too early in the life of the podcast. We have to go on and on about how this type of movie is ruining the world or something like that. Ruining the world. Okay, that's a pretty high bar. Let's do it. (laughs) Hot takes from Mark Linsenmeyer. Well, I thought Brian came in with a pretty (laughs) strong opinion about this film. Well, all right. Here's what happened is I went to go see this movie... And I went with some people who went to see a different movie, which was the new Tarantino movie about the Charles Manson murders. And my movie was done first, so I had to do something else while they were finishing up. So I went to see the last 30 minutes of the Lion King remake, and it really ruined my night. So I think that colored my my whole experience was that abortion of a movie. So maybe people loved it, but I thought it was a soulless grab for money and... As remakes go, it was among the worst. And I've only seen 25% of it, but I think I saw enough. Were you a fan of the original Lion King? I love the original Lion King. So let's just drain all the humor out of it and make it longer. (laughs) That was our choice going into this episode. We wanted to do a current film that would be widely seen, and it was either Spider-Man or Lion King. And you decided to split the difference and ruin your experience of both. (laughs) Bastard. (laughs) What did you guys think of the new movie? We're going to spoil the crap out of it. Yes. This is your spoiler alert. Now is the time to go watch the movie and come back and listen to the podcast. And now that you have, Erica, what did you think of the movie? I thought it was a really enjoyable time. I thought it was like the palate cleanser we needed after, was it, oh God, Endgame? Yes. Which one? I mean, I've seen them all. I thought it was really funny, and I liked the way they dealt with the blip. I think Tom Holland is adorable. My only beef with it really was I love that Marvel realized that being funny was a great thing. I don't think that all the characters need to be funny all the time. So to me, my big criticism was just like, I was getting a little annoyed with all of the little one-liners after a while. Leave them to a few characters, but everybody seemed to have something that was just like cute. And that kind of got on my nerves after a while. But that, that was it. Erica, I sat next to a nervous giggler. And she loved all those one-liners. I must say, honestly, in the beginning, I was slightly irritated. And then it kind of became infectious. And I was laughing a little more than I normally would in a movie because I felt like I could. Because I wasn't laughing as much as the crazy person sitting to the right of me. I thought the humor was one of the strengths of the movie, which I didn't love, but I liked. I think it's funny that when a movie has such a high budget that everybody in it could be a lead in their own movie, pretty much. That the two teachers, Martin Starr and G.B. Smoove, that those are accomplished comic actors in their own right, weren't given a tremendous amount to do, but just throwing those elements in. I even noticed, you know, there was some, I can't remember where in the movie or in the marketing or something where like the whole classroom traveling was like a character. And you could tell that these were not just extras. These were like carefully chosen, cosmetically perfect They didn't just grab like whatever teens were around. Like it was demographically distributed. Everybody, even if they didn't have lines, like they seemed to have a special charisma. It's just a symptom of the excessive budget that we're looking at something that's sort of the height of 
I want to say the height of spectacle that even though this was supposed to be a step down in terms of amount of crazy shit going on compared to Endgame, there's still just so many man hours packed into this thing, of course. I think Marvel does a great job with casting overall. I don't think they've had many misses throughout their whole cinematic universe. And I think Jake Gyllenhaal as Mysterio is very well done. I thought he was an excellent villain. And that's hard to do. There have been a lot of bad villains in a lot of movies through the years. There was someone missing from the first Spider-Man movie, Homecoming, and that was the voice in his suit. Jennifer Connelly was in the first one. And where'd she go? I mean, I know we had Edith in this second movie talking to him in the sunglasses or the whatever those glasses were. But where did... Did she disappear some point in the Avengers movies, or is she only in one of his specialty suits that he wasn't wearing? Yeah, that's what I thought. That What counts as the suit varies throughout the films and throughout this movie in particular, to the point that he's, like, crafting his own suit for the final battle. He's always, like, traditionally, Spider-Man has always had a, many different suits, though, right? So I think it would make sense that he would have it. A- I thought it was a little pervy and weird in the first one that this fully grown woman voice was being so charming and deferential to a teenager uh, whose ear she was in. And I was like, oh, that's gross. And and so when it wasn't in this movie, I feel like, oh, they figured that out. That was kind of nasty. And then here's <laughs> Edith coming along. Like, By the name sounds even older. It's like there's some weird Mary Kay Letourneau thing going on. That was kind of inappropriate. Fortunately, Tom Holland has got to be, what, 35 now? So, no, I think he's actually in his early 20s. Erica, don't you hate when actors play an age different from what they actually are? (laughs) This is a whole other conversation, though. We'll hit it another time. Yeah, let's do it. Don't you think it should have been an Edith Bunker voice? (laughs) (laughs) That would have been good. Oh, Archie! (laughs) Finally, so when we had our D. Bradley Baker, whether it comes before or after this one as we release them, I refused to do any voices because he was on the line and I was so intimidated. So I thought I'd go in there now with my Edith, Edith voice. (laughs) Mark, generally, how much did you like this movie? I enjoyed it quite a bit. It certainly just because we are doing the podcast on it got me thinking. I always want to think with superhero movies and, you know, and having a discussion like this, what is the social function? But of course the problem is whatever the social function, you know, why people found action comics number one when Superman was introduced many, many years ago appealing, that gets very polluted by just the fact that, okay, this is out there, this is established as a thing, this is maybe a general question. If you say, well, the idea of a superhero comic or a superhero movie is to make you identify with a powerful character to kind of give you this sense of safety or something like that, does that effect get diluted, get nullified by the fact that then the trope becomes so familiar? Right. It's not kind of catching you by surprise, capturing your imagination, capturing your unconscious and enabling you to live this fantasy in that way when it's just so established, so self-aware, this whole superhero genre now. Mark, I think familiarity is really what drives a lot of the entertainment that we watch. People kept reading these new Harry Potter books that had the same exact plot over and over again with different dressing on them because they did like what was familiar. I think that familiar has always sold and you putting a different twist and making something slightly different still appeals to people because their expectations are met. It feels fresh, but it really isn't totally different. Truly novel things coming along, I think that doesn't happen very often. A movie like The Matrix seems generational to me, to have something that you see that, boy, I really haven't seen that before. Yeah, these Marvel movies, 
do so well, not because they're fresh or different. They do great because they're all exactly the same and only slightly different from each other. And that's okay. I'm not saying it's bad. You know, back in the Middle Ages, art didn't even depend on being different. To make a piece of art that was a copy of another piece of art was a perfectly legitimate way of expressing artistic talent. This idea that things should be new, I think, is a more recent invention. I don't know if it came along in the Enlightenment or when exactly, but that seems like it's a much newer thing. What do you think, Erica? Right. I love that. I think that's true. There's definitely a difference between are you an innovator or are you trying to create something new or you try to improve upon something that's already there? And these are definitely something trying to improve on something that's already there, something that's established. There is a formula for these movies now. And guess what? I see every single one of them. I was thinking back. I was like, I think I've seen all the Spider-Mans except for the first Amazing Spider-Man movie, which I heard wasn't great and I wasn't that invested in. But I think you both have validity here. Here's the thing. The more that we have certain things presented to us, yes, we can become a little diluted and less excited and the stakes we feel have to be raised higher to make us feel inspired. But on the other hand, comic books have been around for a long time. And how many iterations has Spider-Man alone gone through just in comic books? And people still keep reading those. So I don't think there's any harm in the You know, at at first I was like, why do we need another Spider-Man set of Spider-Man movies? I'm like, well, why do we need another Spider-Man comic series? How many times have I in Batman heard the Batman Joker story? But we still want it. We still like seem to long for these character tropes that we've had, even as stock characters going back many, many years into the, the Greek theater. We long for that familiarity in a sense as well. I know the original tagline for the Superman movie was like, here's a movie that will make you believe a man can fly. And I think for this one, the original tagline was, here's a movie that will make you think that a man can be in a tower and kind of holding it up with some ropes, but then it starts to fall down, but then he makes it not fall down while there's fighting going on next to him, but then it falls down anyway. Oh, yeah. That was a crazy poster. I remember reading that. (laughs) Idiot. So there was my idiot. Erica, you were wondering why I was practicing that in front of the microphone. Mark, the question I ask myself when I see a movie, especially if I know I'm going to be talking about it, isn't the same one you asked because you said you were wondering what the social function was or value. Am I getting that right? Yeah, which I'm wondering now if it's really not. You can ask what is the appeal of this kind of movie and maybe there's some wish fulfillment aspect. We've kind of talked about this before unless you really just despise all the characters, then enjoying a narrative means that you're identifying in some way with the characters. They're relatable. And so they're doing things that you wish you could do or that are interesting. But that's kind of a very general theory of enjoying fiction and doesn't necessarily reply, you know, so you might not be identifying with the fact that he's super strong and has these powers, you know, that's just an interesting characteristic of him. What you're actually identifying with is it's a guy with problems. He has romantic problems. He has choices to make kind of more general identification than that. And not necessarily like superhero wish fulfillment at this point. So that overlaps a little bit, I think, of the question I ask myself, which is, what is the artistic goal? Or what is the creator trying to do either from a narrative or artistic standpoint that they think they could do a little bit differently or better or reinforce or whatever it is. And so, boy, I kind of wish that had happened in the first Spider-Man movie, but it didn't. Or we didn't have the ability to tell that part of Peter's life. But now that he's advanced as a character, we could do this with him that we couldn't do. Honestly, after seeing Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse, I was really 
wondering what the point was of making any more Marvel Cinematic Universe Spider-Man movies, because I feel like the Spider-Verse movie was so fresh and exciting and interesting in a way that I feel like I just haven't been moved very much by the cinematic universe as much. I had not spectacularly high hopes for Far From Home, but I did like it. So I came across this quote that Jake Gyllenhaal said about Spider-Man. Like, so spoiler on top of spoiler at the end of in the post credits, we find out that Spider-Man is revealed as Peter Parker. So that is something that is a little bit different. And maybe that's part of what this movie functioned as is like, he's struggling to come into his own. And by the end of it, even if it's post credit scene, he has to come into his own just by the nature of the fact that, okay, everybody knows who he is now. This is what Jake Gyllenhaal, this was in a Gizmodo article by Charles William Moore. Mysterio exists as someone to teach Peter Parker a lesson. In my opinion, there's no use for just a straight up bad guy unless there's a lesson to be learned. And the lesson, particularly for Peter, is what growing up is for real. Nothing's a secret anymore. What Mysterio reveals will end up helping Peter somewhere. He'll learn from it, and those are the best characters. So we had this character who, I mean, yes, comic book readers know who Mysterio is, but to me, he wasn't that familiar. So it was like, oh, who's this guy? And then he does end up in this particular universe teaching Parker a huge lesson. I think it'll be interesting to see where he goes from here. What are they going to do with the next movie? Maybe it won't be that interesting to some, but I'll be up for seeing it again. What do you think of this whole, the character is taught a lesson. Is it teaching us a lesson too? Is it a learning movie? If you want to look that deeply into it, sure. I mean... Don't trust people. (laughs) That's what you should learn. Yeah. You know, you always know that there's going to be something with these characters where somebody finds out and then it's either they end up dying or they have to reveal who they are. I never really thought that deeply about it as watching those as a kid. But I, I suppose there's some of that coming into your own revealing who you really are, if you can. The lesson is we haven't gotten very far from the 1960s Spider-Man TV show where Spider-Man in every other episode was, wait, he's a bad guy. And J. Jonah Jameson is proving it to us, except now he has some InfoWars-like podcast, but otherwise it's updated, but it's still like the same old shtick that we've been seeing since those terrible animation days. So did you guys look at the original Mysterio comic that I linked you to? Couple pages. Yeah, a couple pages. Tell us more about it. So Amazing Spider-Man number 13, 1963, where Mysterio is introduced as disguising himself as Spider-Man. Like that is the scam in the original comic, that he's disguising himself as Spider-Man. He's going out and robbing banks. And it turns out it's just it's a stuntman that trained in uh, special effects. And so he kind of created a suit and created stuff that would dissolve Spider-Man's webbing and duplicate the webbing and all this kind of stuff that so that he could fight Spider-Man. He could go out posing as Spider-Man and just ruin Spider-Man's good name and then show up as Mysterio and say, Hey, I can defeat Spider-Man. I'm a hero. And they have a parade for him. And just the fact that Peter Parker initially thinks like, huh, the news is reporting that I went out and robbed banks Maybe I did. Maybe I'm just crazy. Like his, his first instinct is self-doubt and he tries to go to a psychiatrist and crawls in the psychiatrist's window and the psychiatrist is like, ooh, if I can treat Spider-Man, I'll, I'll be world famous. And then of course, you know, once Spider-Man kind of figures out what's going on, then he just, the fact that he uses like a spider tracker, 
He has a little spy gadget and a mini tape recorder to record Mysterio confessing his plot. And so then Spider-Man can go straight to the newspaper and expose him that way, that he's using these old-fashioned spy methods and then just beats the tar out of the guy. So there you go. There, Mysterio is defeated. You saved us all a lot of time there. It would never work in the fake news era, but sure, that's as I'm, I'm clicking through this as you're talking about it. It's a pretty good looking comic, actually, especially for its time, I guess, not to be surprised as a Ditko comic. The Mysterio scenes in the movie where he was using his illusions, the visual holograms tied up with the, the drones, they, they were pretty effective. They, they seemed far-fetched to me that they could be so well orchestrated. But when he was torturing Spidey a few times and sort of forcing him to use his spider sense to get through them, his Peter Tingle, yeah, that joke didn't really work for me in the movie. I thought that, I thought they were really... I thought the first time was great. Working a little too hard to make the Peter Tingle happen. It's just not going to happen. You can't make the Peter Tingle happen. It just has to be a natural thing. You know, one thing, this reminds me, those were really beautiful scenes, you're right. But one thing that I thought was really lame, one time they lost me, was when Peter Parker and Mary Jane pick up a piece of the drone, just a small one one drone, and it reveals everything. Aren't they just supposed to project a piece of it? Like, why did we see exactly what we need to see in that moment, except for, you know, concise storytelling purposes? You know, after the scene where Mysterio projectile vomited exposition onto all his colleagues who already knew all that, <laughs> I kind of figured, what difference did a little more make, right? Come on. That was not good storytelling. It was terrible storytelling, but bless Jake Gyllenhaal for making the best speech he could out of it. I feel like it played with the edges of, as soon as a new technology gets introduced, and we don't know how far it's going to go in the future, that's a right place for a story like this to just exploit it and pretend that it's way, way cooler than it is. Like all these movies about computers that came out in 1983 or something. Electric Dreams was what that have them doing just wildly implausible things. And so like, ooh, holographic technology. How does that work? We don't really know. So the audience doesn't really know. So let's just say that there are all these drones flying around and between them, it's not that each is showing a little piece. It's maybe there's some redundancy built in, like that they, they're all programmed with the same full on image, but they have to show it from so many angles and they have to kind of reinforce it so that if one drone gets knocked out, then it's not like they actually showed, like when one drone is missing, Mysterio's arm, disguised arm is just flickers a little bit. Like, that's all that the one drone was contributing was apparently stabilizing that arm. <laughs> but that's what happens when one is missing. One by itself could still show the whole thing. Like At least that's how I was interpreting that as a super redundant system. Otherwise, it, it wouldn't have worked. The technology worked exactly as well as it needed to throughout the whole movie, which is super frustrating. But, you know, that's nothing new. Well, right? the same with his, his abilities. You were just saying, you know, the whole Peter Tingle thing was actually a way of distracting us from, like, isn't it convenient that his spidey sense doesn't work for no apparent reason? I get what, he wasn't self-confident enough? Is that why it didn't work? Yeah, he lost his confidence. Come on. He just had to believe it worked, and then it would work. Yeah. We all have to clap and Tinkerbell will live. They saw how well it worked in Spider-Verse for him not to believe in himself, and so they thought they'd give it a shot. There is about no movie that I can't talk about for an hour and then end up hating. This is great. 
Let's pick my favorite. Let's talk about Finding Nemo for an hour, and I'll manage to hate one of my most favorite movies. Let's do it. Let's ruin that. I almost took my daughter to it, who had not seen Endgame or has not gone on the whole Avengers trip, even though we saw Homecoming as a family, and that didn't really matter. You know, as long as he kind of knew who Iron Man was, had seen the original Iron Man movie, like that was fine. But this one, you know, there's this tension there that was very self conscious about how can we make it a Spider-Man movie, which is supposed to be about 18 and it's relatable and it's everyday experiences. Okay. Well, it's Spidey on vacation, but still it could be a variation off the same thing with, Oh no, it has to fit in the cinematic universe and it has to have world stakes and it has to at least mention several of the other Avengers and why they're not here, etc. Was that a tension for you or was that they, something they were aware of that they made good use of? You know, that was one of the points of novelty of this film. I think they made pretty good use of it. I think they explained it pretty well. I loved the, how they explained the blip. I loved how funny that was. And I think, you know, Mysterio was a good character because he did present some world-destroying tendencies, but it wasn't as nearly as big of a threat as so many of the others. No, I think it was kind of what we needed for this. We don't want them to all be bigger and try to top the previous one because then all we get is just more fight action sequences. I think this did a pretty good job of giving us more of who Peter Parker was. I myself have always been a fan of origin stories for all of the characters. We did already have Peter Parker's origin story, but I feel like this is kind of going back to that, a bit more of that formula of like, let's develop this character rather than developing the destructive forces and and nature around him that make him become like this great, powerful, world-protecting being. He's still friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. I'm happy with him being that. How are you with villain origin stories? Did they interest you at all as much? And what did you think of Mysterio's lousy origin story? I mean, what did you think of his origin story? That wasn't great. But yes, we got his monologue about his origin story. But like, I would be into it if they wanted to do a Mysterio film. Why not? I like the fact that his hench people, I haven't reviewed the previous movies, but like, oh, here's someone from who is an extra in the first Iron Man movie that the Jeff Bridges character yells at and like warmonger, whoever, whoever he is, Obadiah something. That was a cute thing that came out in Endgame too, of like, let's do some time travel stuff and let's have things from old movies. What was going on just off screen of that scene that you remember before? Or in this case, I really like the idea that minor characters who you might have even lost track of the actors, we could bring that person back and say, look, that thing gave them some origin story. I'm such a fan of it, like as an actor myself, but it also gives us such false hope for like, hey, if I get a bit part in something, maybe they'll bring me back and I'll become a star of the next film, which so rarely happens. People don't remember. Right, that schlep from Iron Man must have thought, oh, I was there at the beginning and oh, what a thing it became and I'll never be back. And now he's going to become that symbol for every actor. I can be like that guy. It's false hope. And he even made it. Mysterio didn't, but this guy did. So we'll see him again, most likely, in 15 movies. In the very first Spider-Man movie, they named a bunch of the characters like his science teacher was the character who in the comics becomes the lizard. And I think maybe that villain didn't come out until the second wave of Spider-Man movies. So it clearly wasn't the same actor who got to become the lizard, but like they at least were teasing that right from the very beginning. And I feel like that's maybe what they're doing with these. If you're going to cast Martin Starr as your teacher character, 
you know, if he sticks around for another two movies, he's going to get superpowers. Like, there's no way around that. Yeah, hopefully. But also, like, this is such a huge thing. This whole universe is such a huge thing now that you have celebrities who just want to be a part of it, just to be a part of it. You know, it's like Game of Thrones, the people who wanted to be on Game of Thrones and they'd, or The Hobbit. You know, like, we've seen a lot of these stories where people are like, Stephen Colbert was in The Hobbit, right? Lord of the Rings, he was in... Or was he in Lord of the Rings? Probably both. It's also possible that Martin Starr just was like, yeah, I'll do that film and doesn't expect anything else from it. But he'd be a cool villain. It'd be funny. Is it that once you get cast as something, then you can never be another thing in that universe? Or I don't know my history well enough. No. Ryan Reynolds has been in... I'm going to have to look at how many different things, but he's been several superheroes, right? In the DC universe. He was Deadpool and Green Lantern, but there was two different franchises because he was in DC and... He was fake Deadpool in the Wolverine movie, and then he was actual Deadpool in the Marvel movie. Or no, that was still uh, Universal. That was just some retconning that they did and had some fun with it of having him time travel and shoot his previous uh, incarnation as being a bastardization of the character. But yeah, I think if they like you enough, they can do whatever they want to with you. So that's maybe something to turn to. I've already been talking about how the sort of suspension of disbelief involved in buying that these elaborate holographic projections were happening, really buying the evil villain's whole plan and methods and motivation and everything. It seems like the bar for believability in terms of suspending your disbelief is really, really, really low, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That it can be very self-aware. It can be, of course, we want it to look cool and there's an expectation. I'm just wondering, like, would this be as fun and work almost as well if you had intentionally, well, I want to say terrible special effects, but that would reduce the spectacle of it all, which, of course, the spectacle, even if you don't believe it, like, is kind of the point. So you sort of cheaped out in some other ways, but like you just retained the sense of fun. Playing pretend is kind of the fundamental thing we've got here. And and in that case, you don't have to have a realistic costume or anything. And so to what extent can mass media bring us along on sort of a very primal way of pretending like that? Is that question clear? In other words, like if you have something that's really unbelievable, but you just say, look, this is all in fun. The audience enjoys the fun. The audience wants to, Spider-Man, 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 Spider-Man. Like, that's kind of what animation is, right? That Into the Spider-Verse, yes, it was really slick-looking animation, but it's so obviously artificial. Like, it's not trying to look like real people in a strong way. It's just saying, you're going to buy into this complete fantasy, and it's going to be just as fun as if we tried to make it super realistic. Mark, I don't think effects or how realistic things are has ever been a part of whether people bought into a story. If it's characters you care about and a story that brings you along, Greeks were wearing masks and you couldn't even see their faces and no one, it was unrealistic, you know, back in the day and up through, you know, no theater and all these puppet shows. I mean, that character looks like a puppet. It's like, it's okay. We care about that character. And it just strikes me that that is way more important than however good or bad the effects are. And and I think the old cheesy, like Roger Corman movies, the reason people mock them isn't because the effects are lousy. It's because they don't take themselves seriously. And when it's an inauthentic experience from the creator, you're going to feel that as a viewer. Looking back at the Raimi Spider-Man, right? I remember watching the very first one in the theater and being really impressed by all the special effects. And then a few years later, looking back and being like, oh my gosh, that's so clearly CGI. They're still, you know, enjoyable films, but I think ultimately like 
maybe the first I have, it's been a while since I've seen the first one, but I know going back and watching like some of the sequels, I was far less impressed and it did feel at times like they were, I can't really judge on this, but it felt like maybe they were making the movies for the wrong reasons and just for profit. It didn't feel like they were pieces of art at all, or even like interesting character pieces after a while. It was just very predictable. And I think the MCU has done a great job of interweaving all these stories, whether or not you like that aspect of it or not, and you want them to be, you know, singular movies. Like we care more. We care more about the characters because we've seen them develop through so many things. And and also even though Tom Holland's Spider-Man is a fairly new Spider-Man, we care about him because he's linked to Tony Stark, who started the entire series of these. And he feels like real Spider-Man to me. Or more importantly, he feels like Peter Parker to me in a way that Tobey Maguire didn't always. And so when I, if I get the sense that you know, they don't know what they're doing, you lose your connection as a member of the audience. And I feel like that's one big strength of the MCU Spider-Man is that that's him. Right. And that's not even necessarily Tobey Maguire's fault, right? It could have been the direct. Oh, no, I'm not saying it is. I know, yeah. but I feel the same way. I'm like, I'm not a big fan of Tobey Maguire, but I'm, I'm like, is it him? Or is it the way he was directed or the way that it was edited? So I just think MCU has done just a great job with most of these films. Even the bad ones are still really enjoyable. What do you consider a bad one? <sighs> the first Thor wasn't great. Or was it the second Thor? The second one seemed more forgettable. I think it was the second Thor. Honestly, I actually liked this Spider-Man better than his original, his origin story. Eric is making a face right now, by the way. I think a lot of people will disagree with that. I don't know if I was just tired when I saw it, but I actually fell asleep during one part of it. And I was telling my husband, I was like, don't you remember when I fell asleep? And I was like, it was during this particular scene. And he's like, I don't even remember that scene. And I was like, exactly. I think a lot of people do not like origin stories and find them tiresome. And can't we just skip them? So when the MCU introduced Spider-Man, we didn't have to suffer through yet another Spider-Man origin story. There was much rejoicing and crying in the streets of joy. So I, I know I did not need to see it again. This is one of the, the aspects of realism, that when you introduce people with superpowers, then there is the question of how that person who is discovering they have superpowers and how other people should react. And what's kind of good about both the Marvel and now the DC universe is because they've established that in this world, things like this are possible. They've seen on TV Superman or the Avengers flying around and doing stuff. And so when somebody has that, it's just like more, oh, that's cool. That's really awesome that you can do that. Not what the fuck? <laughs> like, and having some existential terror, which would make it more realistic and so in that sense bring you in more but like come on we're the audience we've come here to see a superhero movie can you just get past that is that part of what makes origin stories tiresome to you or people have keep seeing them like oh my god we're rebooting batman oh we're gonna have to see his parents get killed again like maybe you can just let me know when that's done and then start the story brian you, you just spoiled batman wait seriously how many more times do we need to see dr wayne oh my gosh uh, should I say who the Batman is? <laughs> Bruce Wayne? <laughs> it seems like a, a shift then to do like Gotham and Smallville that like not only we're going to have an origin story, we're going to have an origin story that runs seven years long <laughs> that they just inched up, inched up to being Superman. For me, an origin story is way more interesting. It's like going to therapy, right? You want to know why somebody became the way they did. And yes, like, 
the reactions and all of that, that does get annoying. And when people find out, you're like, okay, okay, I get it. But yeah, I want to get into the psyche of it. You want to see who their parents are and why they have certain quirks about them. And some origin stories do that really well and some don't. I just found a YouTube video, which is called Evolution of Spider-Man Getting Bitten by a Radioactive Spider in movies, cartoons, and games. So we could watch eight minutes of Peter Parker getting bitten over and over again by variously horrific spiders. I loved how Spider-Verse did that, though, and he just smacks it. It's like, go away. And he doesn't realize that the next day is to go back and something's really wrong. I love so much of Spider-Verse. I mean, maybe if we talked about that for an hour, I wouldn't anymore. But man, Doc Ock and that one... Catherine Hahn, she was so good. It was so exciting that visually more interesting, I think, than anything in the new movie that we saw. But we're not talking about that movie. Thanks, whoever picked this podcast topic. So that was taking on the passage of time, which is an interesting. The Marvel Cinematic Universe is trying to present an ongoing history. And even that is going to have to be just freaking rebooted at some point. And we're already having this trouble with the X-Men that that started long enough ago that then, oh, we have to recast people. Well, let's recast them, but have it as a first class that this is happening 30 years before the previous movie. And so that's why we have different actors. But now those actors are getting older and we can mix them with the previous actors. And now we're going to have to jump and have it be a parallel universe that somehow merges with the Marvel Universe. I'm sure we'll have an X-Men related thing at some point in time, but it all gets very crowded, and in the comics it's even worse. So they have to do crazy things like, let's have a world cataclysmic event where the Scarlet Witch yells, no more mutants, and then most of the mutants disappear off the face of the Earth because there are just too goddamn many of them in our comics. We don't want to keep track of that, so we have to have some world event. And there have been things, you know, DC going back to introduce the multiverse to account for that. And that's what Marvel in Into the Spider-Verse picked up on is, well, if we want to say, you know, there's the Spider-Man that started in this year versus the Spider-Man that started 20 years later. Like, well, we can't have things move like half time in comics as opposed to the real world. But we still want to pretend that the latest thing is happening right now so people can feel you know, that they're not reading something about 1980. How do you feel about the whole way that Marvel has dealt with this issue recently in the movies, at least? I like a multiverse idea. It reflects the time period we're living in. People kind of are interested in this in the general zeitgeist, right? But I also think it's a little bit lazy as well because we've already, like Star Trek came out with, multiple timelines a few years before that. So I was like, oh, so this is just going to be a theme in our movies now, I guess. And if there's time travel, at least you can explain that. They had mirror universes back in the show in the 60s. I mean, it's been around a long time as a trope. The show? You mean like the Super Friends? The Star Trek, the mirror universe, right? The mirror, mirror episode. Well, we haven't seen the evil Spider-Man come over from the mirror universe and, and whoop on. In the Marvel comics, there's... I can't even remember the name of the series, but like there's a band of that just travels alternate universes. And so like in this universe, Captain America is the tyrant and he's evil. And so what what do they do in that? And then there's some villain that sort of comes out of the multiverse to try to restore order or something. They've played with that. Pretty much anything that could possibly be done in the movies has been done in the comics (laughs) seven times over. And the DC universe same thing, right? Like I used to be a big fan of the flash and then they started playing with that 
as well. Kind of reminds me now that I'm thinking of it of like soap operas or telenovelas. It's like you have somebody and then you have their evil twin coming back and you can't tell which one is which. And you think that this person is out for good, but they're actually the evil one. And they have taken the good one and like buried them underground in some sort of bunker. And so maybe our uh, superhero movies are just taking over where uh, soap operas have left off. You know, we're tired of soap operas. Now we're into superhero movies doing the, the same thing. I read an article once that said you will never see the end of Star Wars or it was, or maybe it was like you will be dead before Star Wars is over. This idea that it'll just keep going because it's making too much money to not keep going. And just like these soap operas, right? As long as they're making money, I'll be dead before one life to live is over. If indeed it's not over, I don't know. But I think money is going to regulate this, Mark. At some point, these movies are going to stop making money and they're going to have to contract or figure out what they need to do. Or some multi-billion dollar company is going to buy or sell some other multi-billion dollar company and they'll lose the rights to something. This idea that they just keep getting bigger and joined together and more sprawling, I don't think it can just keep expanding forever. At some point, it's going to contract and probably reboot and be better or worse. Who knows? But that's the nature of things. Mark, maybe we should touch really also on this Spider-Man Far From Home gives fans what they want, but asks some tough questions too by Noah Berlatsky. Which I think that's the second article that we've cited on this podcast by him, so I guess we have to get him as a guest. That should be a rule. (laughs) That if we think what you have to say is interesting enough that we cite you twice. Yeah, what brought you to that article? I was just trying to see in the, the swash of reviews and essays about this, were there some that seemed to have be analyzing what the ideology or what the ideas involved were it's saying that you know this is a very self-aware movie, very much reflecting on the spectacle. Berlaski talks about how there's drones involved here, that it's very much reflecting on the massive destruction that we are capable of, and that as consumers, we watch war, we watch things blowing up on TV in these movies, you know, whole cities being decimated, and we cheer. The movie itself is even asking us, is that such a good thing? Shouldn't we feel more ambivalent about enjoying destruction in which, well, they don't show people getting actually crushed and killed, but it certainly is implied. But it's not us, right? That's why we can enjoy it. It's not us. It's not real people. Yeah, it's not real people. He also, he hit on a point there too, that what you see affects what you believe, right? So if we keep seeing these things that are not us and not people we know, does it take away some of that significance of what it, like that destruction really is and... How do you appropriately reflect that? But if they did actually reflect that in in these movies, we wouldn't really want to watch them, right? It'd just be like watching a really sad movie that's trying to win an Oscar that's four hours long that's telling us all about the destruction of a world. I think there was a DC movie that picks up after Superman's fight with Zod in Metropolis, and so many people were killed in that battle. Like, it's multiple buildings are just destroyed and they have to rebuild. And it is a pretty dark look at just the havoc that's wreaked. And that may have happened after the Avengers movie as well. We have seen that side of people living in the ass end of these cities who are buried under rubble. You can wrap it in, well, we're being attacked, so we have to do this. But do you really have to do it this way and use these giant cities as your playgrounds for fighting in? I'm not really sure, but it is a stone-cold bummer because that's not why you watch... These movies, right? You are supposed to relate to the heroes who are above worrying about the normies like us who are just getting 
killed because they went to work. They had the audacity to show up with their lunch and be sitting working on Microsoft Excel as some alien gets slammed into their building and now they're dead. Yeah, and luckily MCU does touch on some of this a bit more than other iterations have, right? Tony Stark is a difficult character to love in a lot of ways. He's a very complicated hero. To some people, he may be an anti-hero. This discussion of looking at some of this dark side of what heroes do really points to a bit of a moment we're having right now with anti-superhero properties. And, you know, Watchmen had was already some years ago and it was a graphic novel, actually comic books in the 80s and then a movie in the 2000s, I think. I don't really know what the reboot or the sequel or whatever on HBO is going to be. There's a new show on Amazon called The Boys, which really casts superheroes in a negative light. Just this idea that they're above reproach in terms of what they do. Have either of you? I've actually read the series, The Boys. I actually just started watching this last night after I got home from the movies, and I didn't even get through the first episode. But spoiler alert, go ahead and move past this, everybody. And Mark and Erica, too bad. In one of the very early scenes, there's a guy with his girlfriend, and they're having a tender moment in a city street. Just as he's done kissing her, she just is turns into a, a splash of blood and guts because a character like the Flash is racing and just runs right through her and destroys her. It is nasty. I, you know, I actually haven't seen a TV show in quite some time that had quite so many warnings at the beginning of the TV show. There were like eight or nine of them of what I needed to brace myself for in terms of parental warning. I almost didn't watch it as a result, but... And I may not finish it, but I could totally see that of how many people's lives would be touched by superheroes wanting to relate to the victims of superheroes more than the superheroes themselves. So that series is by Garth Ennis, who did The Preacher. That's also been made into a TV show. He hates superhero comics. The fact that he's a cool writer writing in that genre, in the genre of action comics, but yet that is just completely dominated by superhero comics. So like his doing an anti-superhero comic was a way of, and the same with the preacher, he's kind of somebody with supernatural abilities who's kind of like a superhero, but it's definitely not a superhero comic. Allows him to play in that space and get a lot of the same audience and get that hype without actually having to, as Grant Morrison, who is also a subversive figure, but actually appreciates where his influences have come from and will, you know, actually has written Superman runs and other things in the DC and Marvel universes. You know everything, Mark. We'll have a comic one later. I spent a lot of time with the comics. So being sad about, I always remember the scene in, uh, I want to say Dr. Evil in Austin Powers where like he has just like thrown a hench person down a ravine or something or shot a hench person. And then they cut to a scene with Rob Lowe at a club and like they're all waiting for their friend to show up for like his birthday party or something like that. <laughs> like, oh no, that was that, that henchman that just got incidentally killed in the previous scene. <laughs> this one of the best jokes of that movie or of any referencing a, a spy movie or anything that has disposable characters. Like that, that's just part of the part and parcel of action movies is that there's going to be a lot of casualties and you just got to get past that because that's part of the fun. In this Berlaski essay, he says, supposedly we all know that the superheroes like Mysterio blasting away with green energy are a fantasy. They're just a conglomeration of special effects and acting. They're not real. But is our visceral joy in these displays of power completely harmless? Can you cheer as whole cities are destroyed for giggles without there being any consequences? When we tell ourselves stories about our own righteous destructive power over and over and over, 
that's bound to have some effect on how we feel about actual super weapons. You feel like that's a legitimate point or is that hyperbolic bullshit? You have to question why you feel the way you do about things and really wonder. So many superheroes, though, do have the dark side that they go, you know, we talk about superheroes' dark sides a lot in movies and comic books. I think that's a way to help us question, is what they're doing always for the greater good? And is that an okay thing? So I think it's an important question to ask ourselves and to keep asking ourselves, and that reflects our own world. Why do we feel the way we do about who's good and who's bad? And comic books just kind of bring that to life for us. I always worried about the cities that were being destroyed. I still do. When I watch a movie, I'm like, oh my gosh, who's going to have to pay for now? Well, it used to be like, oh my God, how many people died? And now it's like, do they have insurance for that? Is the subway still working? Am I going to get to work? The cities are presented as caricatures a lot like the henchmen are, right? And especially in Far From Home, every time we went to a new city, we saw the most caricature version of it. And when we were in Holland, it was these little houses. And then when we were in Venice, it's straight to the canals. And it's not like we're seeing the real Venice. We're seeing the cartoon Venice. And we don't worry about the cartoon Venice quite so much or the cartoon Czech Republic quite so much. So I think we can separate ourselves as viewers. I mean, maybe we can't at some level, but at least at an intellectual level, we I know nothing's happening to anybody. This is all done for dramatic effect. Do you feel like you are going to not worry so much about cities, Mark, not when they get destroyed, knowing, oh, well, I've seen this before and it's OK. I think that's very much like the argument we touched on about video games, like, oh, you're going to get desensitized to killing. And for me, no. In fact, having a fantasy where you're going around sniping people gets out some of that aggression and makes it even more, to me, unreal, unbelievable that something like that would actually happen. That, like, it's sort of a safe fantasy zone and not something that is making you a more coarse and violent person that would act this way in the real world. And so I feel the same way in movies and things like that, that we're not seeing King Kong run around and kick around New York City. People have been seeing that imagery for many, many, many years. Did that somehow desensitize people for 9-11? No, not even slightly. Right, and then the littlest things happen in real life, and someone will post a video of like a semi-truck on an icy road sliding backwards and then going half over a bridge. And that's nothing compared to what happens in these movies. And I find those totally shocking when I see them. And I'm not even seeing them in real life, but just on a YouTube video and kind of lousily shot on a phone thinking, oh man, and like for real, Erica, like I hope that person has insurance or I hope, you know, when you see that, that these people are okay. Often they don't show videos when someone gets really, really hurt or killed. And sometimes they do. I feel like I can totally separate myself from one to the other. So maybe would it, not that when superheroes, superhero movies have an obligation, maybe incorrect, but is there something that might compel superhero movies in the future to go a little bit deeper into the realness of people that we lose to bring us closer to caring about things that happen in the world that we just choose not to pay attention to? See, that would get us more into that suffering porn that we've talked about before. I think there's definitely a whole other episode with a different movie to talk about in this whole, as soon as we introduce superheroes, we have to start thinking about what if they were real and we have to make it really gritty. 
what you're talking about seems to be another flavor of that is like seriously mourning the dead and seriously being concerned about the violence that's going on and doing a deep psychological analysis of how it screws up the hero. Like, yeah, okay. Maybe if there's a new Punisher movie, we can, we can talk about that. And can you do both? Can you have a superhero movie that is as fun as Spider-Man that can get to something that's also very serious? And I, I guess, you know, the, the final Avengers movie got as close to that as, 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 you can, or that as close to it as they have. So the support group for the people who blipped away and or right. know, the people, the, the survivors. Yeah. I guess I'd be interested to see a little bit more of that. What somebody else, what a, another take, another director's take on that would be taking something very extremely personal, like and dark, like a lot of Batman's are, but then melding that with something light and frivolous as well. And perhaps it could be based in New York city and have a female lead who's very Erica looking. And Come he's on. not very good at martial arts, but she can play a violin. <laughs> They'll CGI the rest of it. It'll be a violin-based superhero. Yeah. They'll CGI the violin out and make it look like some really cool weapon. I would pay to see the last half hour of that <laughs> as I snuck into it, having paid for the other movie. Can you do your voice for the fiddler? I'm thinking actually this might work better as a villain. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's totally, that's totally a villain. We are going to keep talking a little bit about potential jumping off points for this in our supporter only segment. You can go to patreon.com slash pretty much pop if you want to hear those. We do those for every episode. And we're going to say farewell to you and have a good, what is, what is a spidey catchphrase? I can't even think of one that would be a good goodbye. Signed your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. There you go. Your friendly neighborhood podcast. So long. See ya. Bye. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life podcast network. Please visit partiallyexaminedlife.com. And it's also presented by openculture.com.